Welcome to Kick-Ass Boomers, giving you the motivation and inspiration you need to make the most of your later years. Whether you're still in the planning stages or you're several years in, we'll share stories from boomers who refuse to act their age and continue to live a life inspired. Let them show you how being old can be new if you know what to do with your host, Terry Lorbeer. Hello and welcome to Kick-Ass Boomers. My guest today is Michael Picard. Mike has studied writing at the University of Chicago, the University of Wisconsin at Madison, Northeastern Illinois University, and at the Science Fiction Novel Workshop at the University of Kansas. He has been a member of several writers groups over the last 18 years and is currently both a member and the webmaster at the Chicago area-based The Writers of Glencoe. Mike has written eight novels, a collection of short stories, and two children's books. Welcome, Mike. How are you today? Terrific. It's so good to be with you. I'm happy to have you. This is going to be very interesting, especially your book of, about the Gurfnet Chronicles. That's just so different. So give us a little background on what you studied in college, your work history, and how you came to your third career as a writer. Well, uh, I was fortunate enough to be accepted into Northwestern University out of high school. And I uh, didn't decide right off what I was going to major in, but eventually figured out it was going to be mathematics. I also had an interest in computers. Uh, I had had a bad experience with computers back in high school. I guess you're not paranoid if the machines are actually out to get you. And so I took a computer class in, in college to get my revenge. And revenge was sweet. I aced my first computer course and, and said, okay, this is something I can do. It's something I enjoy doing. But I found that back then, seems like the dark ages, uh, Northwestern didn't have a major in computer science, and that's what I wanted to study. I was working at the computer store and hanging out in an office with grad students who had to teach courses, and they were always flailing about what topic they were going to teach. So they had an undergrad audience of one in the room and asked, what would you like to learn? And based on my suggestions about things I was interested in, they would create courses. So looking back, I was kind of creating my own computer science curriculum, which was terrific. The bad news was because they knew me and shared an office with me, they didn't cut me any slack in terms of grading. Uh, so I really, <laughs> I, I really had to learn this stuff. When I graduated, I found a terrific job writing new software at Illinois Bell, which at the time was the phone company. Yeah, which is a great job to have right out of college. That's wonderful because Ma Bell was a great employer. So it was a good place to start. Yeah, and, and I uh, spent 28 and a half years there uh, wow. on, on 13 different unique jobs. Mm. Uh, and from the math, you can tell that about every two years, I was changing from something to something else. My wife and I went to a, a Beatles tribute band over the weekend, and she made the comment about how the Beatles changed their music frequently. They were only really around from 1960 to 70, uh, approximately. Right. And so I was thinking about that in terms of this interview. And in fact, looking back, I did a lot of reinvention. I, I, I changed who I was and what I did 
even at the phone company, changing jobs every two years gave me fresh exposure to to new environments, new stuff, new people, uh, and I could do new things. That sounds great. And I think that's how you grow in your job when you do that. And But you have to be a little proactive. I don't think the company just does it. I think you've got to do certain things where they want to put you in those positions. But it does show how creative you are. You've been creative your whole life. In college, you created some computer science classes so you could get a minor in computer science. And then in Ma Bell, you kind of were very creative getting new jobs. So, yeah, I guess that's where your writing skills come from, right? Yeah. When when I look back at boxes of stuff that I have kept uh, when I was younger, I came across a little booklet I wrote. It was probably the first story I ever wrote. And it was about about a guy named Mr. Oops. Oops backwards was poo. So I, I guess I had a, a subliminal message in there somewhere. <laughs> uh, and it was only about four or five pages. Uh, but I guess I've had a writing bug from when I was very young. Oh, that's interesting. So your book, The Gurfneck Chronicles, was inspired by letters to your daughter, Samantha, who was away at summer camp, and she wanted you to write to her every day. So instead of just telling her what was going on in the family, you came up with the idea to write about aliens coming to Earth. So where did that come from? How did that idea pop into your head? Well, this was her first away from home camp experience. And parents worry. Uh, sometimes unnecessarily. Yeah. Uh, it turns out she was perfectly capable of handling a week away at camp, but I was still a little nervous. And because she told me she wanted me to write her every day, I, I wanted to give her something that she would find amusing and also make her feel better about herself. So I thought if I send her a story about someone who goes to overnight camp and doesn't do very well, in comparison, she's going to feel like a star. So who would be someone who would mismanage the camp experience worse than anybody else on the planet? And my answer was someone from a different planet. So Gurfnit the Frob was sent by his council uh, to come to Earth and visit overnight camp. I didn't want to talk to the adults because they were too flaky, uh, but talk to children and figure out the special things that earthlings knew that frobs didn't know. Interesting. Very interesting. And it makes perfect sense when you think about it. They should talk to the kids. Kids are honest. They're going to give you the real opinion. They'll accept you right away. So it really was the perfect vehicle for your daughter. I think that's so great. So, and that's where your imagination came from that because in a book like that, you have to kind of make everything up, right? What planet they came from, how they got here, names and, you know, everything had to be made up. So it took a lot of imagination to do that. It it was interesting when uh, I sold a copy of the book at one of the family reunions, the cousin from California, Bob, asked why Gurfnit was picked for this mission from all the other possible FROB mission specialists. And I didn't have an answer. 90,000 words later, I had a prequel where I had to do some really severe world building because it takes place on FROB and you get to see the FROBs in their native habitat. That that was a lot of, uh, that took a lot of creativity. Yeah, that's a lot of work, just backing and uh, yeah, getting everything right. That's a lot. So you wrote another book after the Gurfnet Chronicles that was also about the aliens? Yeah, it, it was my prequel. Okay. Uh, and, and there were a couple of manuscripts 
that are still kind of kicking around on my hard drive for uh, third and fourth books. Uh, but I haven't gone back to them. I've, I've had other stories that I've wanted to tell, stories I feel compelled to write and share. Right. So was this one of your children's stories? This was specifically for children, right? The Gurfnep Chronicles? Well, it, it was written to my daughter when she was 11, 12, 13, 14, okay. Okay. over about a five-year period. So young and, adult age. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that Gurfnep does in the book is there are things that you and I think of, and we have simple names for them. There's a bench or a chair or a desk, and he used alien speak to describe these things. So the Griffin Chronicles is the perfect book for a parent to read with a child to decode some of the intentionally humorous misnamed things that are in right. the book. That sounds really, and it's a fun thing to read. I, as an, a parent, I'd much rather read that than some of the other silly stories they might want to hear. So yeah, you're right. It's a great story to read together. So you've recreated yourself three times over the years. So what advice do you have for boomers who are getting ready to retire from their main job, but they're not really ready to fully retire? Do you have any advice that you can give them to how do they figure out what they might want to do? Well, so I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, Apple, worked at Apple for 14 years. And Steve Jobs uh, used to say that you can only connect the dots looking backwards. So, so being prescriptive about what you do going forwards is a little tough. Because I had the writing bug when I was still at the phone company uh, and through my 14 years at Apple, I can look back at the stories that I sent to Samantha as a foundation for moving ahead as an author. But I guess the, the general advice is that when you pursue something, uh, you really have to have your heart in it. I've, I've been very fortunate. There hasn't been a job that I've had where uh, I didn't uh, throw my feet out of bed in the morning and want to go there. Uh, I was really motivated, head and heart, mm -hmm. in uh, going to my place of employment. And so there was never any question about my dedication to the work. It, it makes work into pleasure, maybe not fun, but something you enjoy doing. And right. so if you roll out of one career, I strongly recommend that you find something where uh, the work makes you feel happy. Uh, it may not make your heart sing, but at least you, you will be pleasantly dis, uh, disposed to, to doing that kind of work. And if you follow your heart, your heart I, I don't think it'll lead you astray. Now, what did you get out of working at Apple? Like, what do you feel you took away from being there all those years? Did you like being around people? Did you get insights about that? Because I'm thinking you were in the retail store, correct? Or am I wrong? No, you're right. Uh, okay. So uh, the 20 and a half years of the phone company, none of it was customer facing. You know, you interact with your peers, but uh, there's not a customer walking up to you in the middle of your office. Right. Uh, so, uh, and sometimes I can be a little shy. So, I learned a lot of lessons at Apple. Uh, one was uh, how to deal with a stranger walking up to you and, and, and keeping your cool. Uh, second, I had opportunities to teach, and I'm an inveterate teacher. Teaching is part of my DNA. So I got to teach customers who paid for the service, and I love that. I got to teach new employees how to do the job properly uh, because they went through training and learned what the job was but they didn't have the real world experience. And that's something that I could 
uh, advise them about and help make them more successful. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a high tech company. They, uh, they typically hire some really nice folks. Uh, and so I was around nice people. Uh, they became my work family. In fact, I stopped in at the store yesterday. There's still people there who uh, I met and one guy who I trained uh, years ago. Uh, and he greeted me with a, a very hearty fist bump, not a hug. Uh, so a great camaraderie, a great environment, from my perspective, great technology and an opportunity to teach. Yeah, that sounds good. And the other thing is you got the opportunity to meet younger people and make friends with younger people, because I talk about that a lot on my podcast. As older people, we have to make sure we have friends of all age groups, because as we age, our friends will start dying off. And if you don't have any younger friends, you lose the people that you're, are your friends and you don't have that companionship anymore. So it's really important to have friends of all ages and those tech people, they're just really good. So they're going to keep you, your mind active and engaged too, when you have friends like that. Yeah. I, I felt younger in the store, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I was uh, fully accepted as a peer, but maybe sometimes as uh, the sage in the room, mm -hmm. uh, which didn't feel bad either. Yeah. Uh, I, I volunteer at the local high school helping out as kind of an informal uh, teacher assistant in an English class and being around the teens and, and watching them process the learning also keeps me younger. It, it, it just keeps me in touch. Yeah. And I think that's a great idea. And I talk about volunteering an awful lot too. If you don't need to work when you're older, then find a good volunteer organization that you really love and that you, something that, you know, makes your heart sing so that you enjoy going there. So you need to be doing something once you're retired. If you, if you have to retire from your regular job, then you need something to make you want to jump out of bed in the morning, give you something to look forward to. So volunteering really fulfills that for a lot of people. So I think we should all volunteer a little bit, but if you aren't working at all, you have a little bit more time to volunteer. So find a volunteer organization that you really like. So that's important too. So tell us about your latest book, Forward and Back. What does that mean, Forward and Back? So all the novels that are currently up on my Amazon author page have been science fiction novels. I, I love the genre. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I've, I've written novels about aliens who come to Earth. I've written about Earthlings who go to other planets. I've written about uh, what happens in the future when technology changes, uh, but I hadn't written a, a time travel novel and it was time. Ah. So no, no pun intended. So <laughs> I took the basis of my experience becoming a father for the first time as the basis for the novel. I have a fictitious particle physicist. At one time I wanted to go into physics. Mm. Uh, and he's named after my physics teacher from high school, uh, who passed away in 2020. Uh, the, the book is dedicated to him. So his name is Randy. And uh, Randy has a number of things going on. His wife, Faith, is pregnant. And after 10 years of funding, he has to prove uh, that his experiment design works. And he hasn't yet. So he has one final test before his funding runs out. That test happens to come the morning that faith goes into labor. So now, so now he has this choice. So I, I stay with my wife and let the experiment happen. And I won't be there to make sure it happens right. Cause he was nervous. Or do I go to the experiment and leave my wife behind? 
She says, I need a breadwinner. You you have to go to the experiment. Just promise me you'll come back after the experiment's over. He says, fine. There's a snowstorm. It's December and it's snowing badly. And so he gets in his car. He's late to work. And just as he pulls into the parking lot and he's parking in a non-parking space on a little hill, he he shows up and, and the experiment happens and he feels his car shake. He feels like he's in a whirlwind. Uh, things go black. And a moment later, he finds himself on uh, sunny green grass uh, in the same physical place, but eight years in the future. So wow. at that point, at that point, uh, his wife has declared him dead. He has an eight-year-old son that he's never met. Wow. He has no job. He has no money. Uh, and the car he used was destroyed from this time travel episode. Mm-hmm. And so the, the book describes, shows uh, how Randy comes back from this disaster and tries to make sense of it and tries to figure out what to do. Boy, that sounds so interesting. <laughs> now I want to run out and buy the book and it's coming out in February, correct? So it is uh, It is actually preloaded on uh, the Amazon uh, author page right now. So it, it's okay. purchasable as we speak. Oh, wonderful. Wow. Because that sounds so interesting. That's great. Time travel is a big topic. So that's great. <laughs> So where can my Boomer Nation find your books, learn more about you? Do you have websites? Amazon, I know they can probably get all your books on Amazon, but do you have any other places for them to go? So uh, I created a, an easy uh, <clears throat> web address for uh, people to get to the Amazon webpage. It's www.gerfnit, spelled G-E-R-F-N-I-T.com. Uh, that will take you to the Amazon author page. Mm-hmm. I love getting emails from readers or people who are just interested in writing. Uh, I often help out writers who are uh, struggling with some advice. Uh, so people can reach me at author at gerfnet.com. And then right. I have Instagram and uh, Twitter at gerfnet author, one word. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm pretty accessible. Oh, good. That's great. And, you know, I think it's probably important if someone wants to be a writer that they join writing groups, because I think you can get a lot of information from other writers. So you, if you're by yourself in a room, it's just really hard. Uh, you're absolutely right. One of the things that I use as a tool uh, to get the story out of my head and into the computer is a National Novel Writing Month. So this happens every November. The goal is to do 50,000 words, uh, which becomes the basis, hopefully, for someone's book, uh, either a novel or a, a, a memoir, whatever it happens to be. It could even be a, a nonfiction uh, book about medicine and technology or something. Right. Uh, I, I take a couple of months to plan for National Novel Writing Month. Then in November, I, I dump the story out of my head as if I was transcribing it. And then I leave it alone in the month of December. And then I start forming uh, that mountain of words, which I've trademarked, into uh, scenes and then chapters. And, and eventually those chapters get shared with three different critique groups that I'm a member of. Oh. Uh, and, and so one will process it and then I'll make a bunch of changes. And then a second one will see it and they'll see different stuff. And so although dumping the story out of my head takes a month, and crafting it into chapters might take three to six months. 
it can take a year and a half of editing by myself and then critiques and then finally beta readers to bring the books to a level of quality that I'm satisfied with. Ah, beta readers. Okay, interesting. So, and then from the time you're pretty much done the book, how long does it take to get it actually in print or over to Amazon where you're able to sell it? Well, the one curtain in the churn is the book cover. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've done a lot of them myself. For forward and back, I actually commissioned some work by a professional graphic artist who did a marvelous job on the cover. I I am so pleased. Right. Uh, I've kind of switched genres. So the the two books that I'm dabbling with now and the third one in the pipeline are all mystery stories. And it turns out it's going to be a mystery trilogy. I didn't plan that initially, but (laughs) that's what the characters told me. So I'm doing it. And so I'm, I'm going to attempt to commission work from her to, to make a series of three covers that have similar designs and, and carry forward. Now, where did you find the person that did the cover? Because I talked to a lot of authors that don't even know where to begin to make that cover. They know they need some help, but they don't know where to go. How did you find that person? Well, I'll tell you, I've been awfully lucky. In critique groups, I almost always find someone who's a subject matter expert that's relevant to what I'm writing. So in one group, it was someone who had a doctorate in sea creatures. Uh, she provided a manual to, for me on how to uh, dissect a dolphin after a dolphin dies. There's one group who has a lawyer and keeps me straight on my mystery stories and police procedurals. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the people was essentially a midwife and advised me about childbirthing in one of my stories. Well, the, the person that I found to do this cover uh, is the wife of someone that I met on a group called Lunch Chat, which is an invite-in uh, service that matches people up all around the world based on your interests. And, wow, that's interesting. And so uh, I met a guy who does some uh, marvelous graphics, and I am essentially writing the screenplay for his videos. And ah. when I mentioned I was having trouble with the cover, he uh, offered his wife to help out. And, <laughs> and so, you know, it's just fortuitous happenstance where sometimes... You meet the right person. That's right. Well, well, because then you're into a lot of different groups and a lot of different things. I think that's important. You're into a lot of different groups. So you're going to get something out of one of them. So I think that's important. Be out there. I think sometimes the first time author is afraid to share their ideas. They think someone's going to steal it and they don't put themselves out there. But when you join these groups and start talking, you get so much benefit out of it. Yeah, I, I, I am well past the point where I worry that if I'm sharing some chapters in a writing group, mm-hmm. that one of the members is going to steal it and publish it in advance. Yeah. Uh, and, and if they took a chapter uh, or two or even a half a dozen, uh, the thing they have is going to be an early version of the thing that eventually comes out for me. So good luck in trying to peddle something that's substandard because it, it exactly. won't fly. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's how you have to feel. Get out, join these groups, you know, start getting some feedback from people because you need the feedback because we all think what we wrote is great. We need feedback on what to change and how to change it. The feedback works great. Yeah, uh, there are people who will uh, dutifully uh, write a story. They will write the end, hold it, hold up the printed manuscript and say, OK, my book is done. My advice is no, the, the book, your process is just starting. Right. Once you have a complete manuscript, I uh, agree. Be, be, yep. be prepared for probably six months to a year of multiple editing passes, 
please share it with other people to get their perspectives. There's stuff in your head that didn't make it to the page and you're satisfied with the book, but a stranger who reads it is going to scratch their head and say, I don't know what this means. I don't know why the character is doing this. I don't know what stakes are involved if the character does not do this. And so uh, you really need that feedback. That's true, because even with my husband, sometimes he starts talking to me and I'm going, what are you talking about? Because he just watched something on TV. So he kind of knows what he's talking. But I don't have that. And I'm like, well, what are you talking about? So I can see how that can happen in a book, too, because, you know, but that person reading it doesn't have that background knowledge. So it helps to have a third person reading it and saying, look, you got to clarify this. I don't know what you mean. Makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you need to edit for the, the, the regular stuff, punctuation and spelling, but you have to edit for continuity. You have to edit for making sure that the character changes over time uh, and is consistent. I've had people say, Nick wouldn't say something like that. So that tells me two things. One, they're really into the story if they know Nick that well. <laughs> and secondly, I messed up. Right. I, I put someone else's voice in Nick's head. So uh, it, it's, it's absolutely critical uh, to get that kind of feedback. And feedback is a gift. People need to accept it. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. Well, thank you so much for coming to Kick-Ass Boomers today. You shared an awful lot of information with us. Anyone who's thinking about writing, I mean, this is probably the most in-depth podcast we've done with, you know, getting feedback. We haven't really talked about that in the past. I've talked to many authors, but they've talked about the book, but not the process on, you know, once it's written, now you've got to put it out there and get your feedback and tweak it and tweak it and tweak it. It's, it's a process. And it takes time. It doesn't go that fast. So that's great. I, I love that you shared that with us. Yeah, everyone everyone who writes uh, develops their own process uh, and you learn it over time. Someone told me that you really get your stride and your voice on your fourth novel. Ah. So, I, so I, I think I'm there. You're there. You're absolutely there. And and forward and back. I can't wait to read that. That sounds like a lot of fun. Um, so thanks for sharing with us today, Mike. And uh, I encourage people to go to my kickassboomers.com. When you click on Doug's picture, all the show notes will come up. I'll have all his contact information in case you're out exercising or walking and you didn't have a chance to write it down. You'll be able to go to kickassboomers.com and get it on my website. So thanks again for sharing that with us today. It was my- pleasure being with you today. Thank you. We appreciate you joining us for this episode of Kick-Ass Boomers. For more information on today's guest, along with the show notes and other inspiring resources, buzz on over to kickassboomers.com. And don't forget to join our Kick-Ass community on Facebook or LinkedIn to continue the conversation. Be bold, not old. 